0: Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward. They did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant May God enlarge Japheth, let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, you know as well as I do that this is not a text that I would have chosen but in your providence, you have included it in your Holy Scripture. And in your sovereign will, you have used this text to show us Christ. And so I pray, Lord, that as we look to this text, we would, we would not be so distracted by the, the, uh, the spectacle, but would see Christ here. Our faith in Christ would be strengthened, our trust in Christ would be increased, our love for him and for what he has accomplished for us would be uh, all the more strong. Lord, we love you, we thank you for this word, give us wisdom as we seek to understand it. In Christ's name, amen. Well, at the end of last week's passage, and if you're new with us, we go through Scripture. So that's why we're on this text. Uh, I, as I prayed, I wouldn't choose this. God has chosen it uh, in his scriptures, and we uh, believe that he knows better than we do, so we preach what he says to preach. So we are here at in, in the end of chapter 9, and at the end of last week's passage, we got, or we had, with what, what very much seemed like a happy ending. Didn't we? A happily ever after. You've got uh, a rainbow, like there's literally a rainbow, Uh, Noah and his family are probably eating meat off the grill, uh, possibly for the first time ever. How much better of an ending could you imagine? How much better of an ending to Noah's story could you write? But as we just read, the rainbow is not the ending of the story, is it? It may be the end of the story for a children's Sunday school class, or VBS, But there's a reason why there isn't a VeggieTales version of this. Maybe they should. Uh, But either way, Noah's story doesn't end with the rainbow. And the first readers of Genesis would have known that his story did not end with the rainbow. Remember this book? Remember who it was written for? This book was written for the Israelites. They've been rescued by God, brought out of Egypt, And they're preparing to go into the promised land when they receive these sacred writings from Moses, their leader. And that promised land that they're going into is a land filled with, who? Canaanites. So Israel knows that Noah's story did not end with the rainbow. They are in real time living out the violent reality of the rest of the story. And they need to know who these Canaanites are. So, this, Genesis 9:18, the end of chapter 9, is the beginning of the answer to that question for them. But as we'll see, this event is a whole lot more than that. This is also the origin story of the one from Shem's family line, the one who covers sin and shame. And he is the one, as we'll see, who has the power to save even the wicked Canaanites from their curse. So the story begins as a sequel to the flood event. We see that in verse 18. Look at verse 18. These are Noah's sons who came out of the ark, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So this is sort of a Last time on the Ark Wives of Ararat, Shem, Ham, and Japheth walked off the Ark with their father. This is kind of giving us the context here. But this is also the prequel to the Babel event. So look at verse 19. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So that, that, that word dispersed there, that's a key word. In the passive, from these three, the nations were dispersed, sent out, somebody dispersed them, and this is a foreshadowing for us. It's a prequel, as I said, it's a foreshadowing of the end of the Babel event, when the Lord himself will disperse the people over the face of all the earth. So it's a sequel to the Ark and a prequel to the Tower of Babel, and it's also a continuation of of the Noah as the new Adam story that we've been following pretty closely as a church. If you remember back a couple of weeks ago, the way that the new world comes out of the flood was very closely paralleled to creation in Genesis chapter 1, the way that the world was created. Then we saw last week that the seventh day equivalent of the new creation was when Noah made his sacrifice in worship to God. So if you're following that Genesis 1 through 4 story, what would happen next? Well, after that sacrifice, you would get Genesis 2. After the day of rest, you get Genesis 2. God took Adam, who was a man of the soil, remember, and he put him in the garden of abundance, the garden that God had planted. And then the Lord commanded Adam to work the garden and keep watch over the garden. And then he gives, gives Adam a wife to, to complete him. And they're, they're in the garden and they're naked and unashamed. Well, here in this semi-new creation, the new Adam is not put into the garden that God had planted. He said, right, rather, he's got to plant his own garden. He's got to plant his own vineyard. Look at verse 20. So we're already seeing a little bit of a difference here Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard and right off the bat the very beginning of this We're reminded. Oh, this is different We are definitely not in eden Notice also how verse 20 says Noah began to be a man of the soil Now adam was a man of the soil beta the dust noah is a man of the soil. He began to be. That's, that's a play on words. And it's even stronger than we can see in, in the English. Soil, the word for soil in the Hebrew is Adam-ah. All right? So, so if you remember from chapter 2, Adam was taken out of the Adam-ah. Here, Noah, the first man of the new creation, is being identified as the next one who is of the soil. He is of adam well, this man of Adam, ah, uh, the man of the soil, plants a vineyard, and then... voila, wine. And the story's actually really compressed here for anyone who's ever planted a grapevine, right? We, we don't know how long this is after the ark, but we know that it certainly took at least a few years from the time that Noah planted these vines to the time when they produced enough grapes to make wine. So sometime passes between verses 20 and verses 21 of the text. And Noah, the new Adam, who is of Adam, takes the fruit from those vines, ferments it, makes wine, and then drinks enough wine to get passed out drunk. And as the text says, he lay uncovered in his tent. Now, I want you to see that it is clear here that we are meant to see That Noah has sinned. He's a sinner. He is of Adam. That's already been clued in for us. He has the sin nature. Now, up to this point, that's not super clear, is it? Up to this point, Noah has been described as, remember in in chapter 6, he's righteous, he's blameless, he walks with the Lord. And, and, and as we went with him through the, through the ark, through the flood, he did everything the Lord said. So he was perfectly obedient to the Lord. But if you'll remember, when we talked about Noah's righteousness, his righteousness came from the Lord. The Lord showed grace to him, and Noah received his righteousness. It didn't come from inside of Noah. Noah is just like everyone else who is of Adam. Every intention of his heart is evil from his youth. And we see that when Noah misused God's gift. And I say that wine is a gift from God because the Bible is clear that wine is a gift from God. Wherever in the Bible that you see physical earthly blessing from God, there is wine. Wherever there is feasting, wherever there is abundance in the Scriptures, there is also wine. Psalm 104 makes this perfectly clear for us. In Psalm 104, that, that um, really beautiful creation psalm that we've read quite a few times as we've studied Genesis, the psalmist teaches us that just as God provided food for all the creatures of the earth, he gave humanity wine, oil, and bread. Wine, wine is a sign of God's provision for us. Look what the psalmist says. Psalm 104, 14, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock. That's food for the livestock. And plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth. And wine to gladden the heart of man. Oil to make his face shine. And bread to strengthen man's heart. That's biblical. It's no accident then. That Jesus came doing what? Eating and drinking wine as a sign of his humanity. But also a sign of his divinity giving fine wine in celebration of marriage. He's fully man and he's fully God. So there's no problem here with Noah planting a vineyard. There's no problem with Noah making wine. There's no problem with Noah drinking wine. The problem arises when Noah can't stop drinking wine. And you might push back and say, well, there's no command here. There's no, no command against drunkenness, is there? Well, there's not. Not until the New Testament, really. But neither are there commands against polygamy in the Old Testament. But just as too many wives is shown to be problematic and a misuse of God's good gift of marriage, so also too much alcohol is shown repeatedly in the Scriptures to be a misuse of God's good gift of wine. And Noah knows this. He's not ignorant of these things. Noah is a wise man who walks with the Lord. He knows what it is to be satisfied with the Lord. He knows what it is to stay alert and to live in thankfulness to God for God's good gifts. But on this particular day, for whatever reason, the joy that Noah has always found in his closeness to God, in his nearness to God, that is not enough for Noah today. He has determined that he must have more than what God has provided. And this is the root of his sin. I'm going to speak for just a moment on this as from a pastoral standpoint. Some of you have resolved, have interacted with some of you in the church, some of our membership have resolved, based on examples like Noah, or perhaps examples from your own family members or friends that have struggled with alcohol, you have resolved that it would be better for you, not, or maybe you have struggled with alcohol, maybe you've resolved that it would be better for you not to have any alcohol. And there's nothing wrong with that decision. You are in no danger of sinning with alcohol the way that Noah has sinned here. As my mom used to say, you can't get drunk if you don't have the first sip. But that does not mean that you aren't in danger of sinning. You can eat too much. You can sleep too much. You can smoke too much. You can read too much. You can watch too much TV. You can work too much. You can even exercise too much. Basically, any of us, because of the sin nature in us, any of us can take a good gift from God and desire more from it than what God has intended. Or we can seek to be satisfied in that gift rather than the Lord himself. So my word to you, those who abide by a total abstinence standard is this you are right that you can escape the temptation of drunkenness by avoiding alcohol together and that is a good thing but beware don't let your guard down simply because you were avoiding one area that causes men to stumble literally on the other hand Some of you are of the persuasion that alcohol can be enjoyed in moderation. You are to heed Noah's warning from Scripture here. Be careful. Keep watch over yourself. Noah, think about who Noah was as a man for 600 some odd years. He was able to face down the world. He endured the flood. But what prevailed against him? The bottle. So while it is a gift from God, we must be cautious in our use of it. Alcohol can be addictive, it can be destructive, it can be used as an escape or as an end in itself. Be careful. Keep watch over yourself and keep watch over one another. Well, Noah has obviously had too much. And now there's a problem. And now if we were to follow our Genesis 3 parallel passage, Adam and Eve had been deceived by the serpent. They ate of the fruit of the tree. And then Genesis 3 says that their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. All right, so now Noah, parallel, has drunk from his vineyard. He has essentially closed his eyes, and alcohol has that effect, doesn't it? it? All the worldly knowledge that is gained from eating of the tree of knowledge is, is deadened by the amount of alcohol that Noah has consumed. He has drunk of the fruit of his own vines. His eyes are now closed, and he is naked. He's uncovered himself and lay down in his tent. That's the, the parallel that we are to see. Adam, new Adam, same guy. Ham... The youngest of Noah waltzes into the tent, and behold, there's the old man in all his drunk, naked shame. Look at Genesis 9.22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his brothers outside. Those two verbs are important here. He saw and he told. Now, each of the sons here are responsible for their own actions, Right, So we, we can't blame Noah for everything here. He has sinned, but this isn't all his fault. Ham is responsible for his actions. From what we can tell in the text, Ham is already an adult. He is already the father of Canaan. The text has said that two times now. So he knows better than to dishonor his father the way he's done. But really, how bad is his crime? Right, because we see this and we think, oh, this is kind of crude, but it's sort of like a locker room prank. Right, someone's in the shower in the locker room, someone else takes their clothes and their towel, puts them outside the locker room. Now the freshly showered individual has to do the walk of shame out into the hallway to get his clothes back. It's cruel. But is this really deserving Of the curse that's about to come to an entire nation of people? And so so because of that, as we kind of process this in our minds, we think, well, given that extreme curse that Noah calls down on Ham's son, something really, really bad must have happened here, right? And and so Moses is using a euphemism to make this more PG-13 for the, the underage readers. So some people speculate that something sexual has occurred, either with Noah or, or Mrs. Noah. Some in the past have even speculated that, that Ham has castrated his father, thus preventing a fourth son, and that's why Noah curses Ham's fourth son. Others say that, that seeing the father's nakedness is in some way like a, a claiming of his potency or his power, taking his authority, his headship, from him. I don't think that we need to, to go there. Given that text and given the parallels of genesis 9 with genesis 3 none of that speculation is necessary the author has given us everything we need to know in order to understand the text we already know from genesis 3 that the exposing of nakedness brought the reality of adam and eve's sin to bear And here it is again, Genesis 9 now, and the exposing of nakedness has again become an issue. Noah is a sinner, we already know that, and his sin of drunkenness is connected to his nakedness. That's that's obvious from the text here. It's also connected to his shame. He got drunk. He took off his clothes. Adam and Eve sinned and their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. Then they hid from the Lord because of their sin and shame. Noah in his sin has hidden in his own tent but his son has gone in after him. And by seeing his nakedness and announcing it, he has exposed the shame of his own father. To us, this is like I said, it's embarrassing at worst. But, but to their culture, to the culture of the Israelites, this is, this is high treason. This truly is a sin worthy of the curse that follows. Think about the, the Ten Commandments. You've got, you've got the first four commandments, which are all about the relationship between God and man, and then the next six commandments, which are about the relationship between people what is the first of those six commandments? Honor your parents. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And then there's a follow-up to that later on in Deuteronomy. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother. And lest we think that this way of thinking ceased by the time we get to the new testament jesus summarizes all of these commands by saying whoever reviles father or mother must surely die now add to this the realization that we've been talking about that noah really is a sort of king he's not named king But he is the new Adam. He's just been given dominion over all of the world. And as the new Adam, he's the one who's given the headship over those who are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He's a type of king. Sinner though he may be. And the youngest son of this king is committing treason by dishonoring the king in front of all mankind. He's publicly belittling the king. He's exposing him as a shameful one. But that's not all. Remember, remember the storyline that we're tracing. Remember, we're tracing the path of the story of the garden. And in the garden, it was the serpent's desire to bring the downfall of Adam and Eve. And the serpent did that by leading them to sin and then exposing their nakedness and shame. God, in turn, cursed the serpent and then subjugated him below the rest of the beasts. From now on, you shall crawl on the belly and eat dust. You shall be below all the other beasts. That was God's curse. Here, in response to the one who is exposing the sinful nakedness, it is Noah, not God, who brings the curse. You see the parallel? But before we get to Noah's curse, we need to go back and see what Shem and Japheth do in response to this mess. Because this story is not all about Ham, is it? In verse 23, the brothers take what the ESV, what our translation says, is a garment, but actually, in the Hebrew, this can be translated as the garment, and they walk backwards and cover the nakedness of their father. If it is the garment, as some translate it, presumably what's happened is in Ham's foolish recklessness, he's, he's taken some sort of clothing, a blanket, or his dad's uh, uh, some garment out of his dad's tent and he's shown it to his brothers kind of like a trophy and his brothers in turn take that garment and walk it backwards and lay it on Noah and cover his nakedness and this covering and their intent not to see look out Clearly, the text tells us they did not see. Their intent not to see their father's nakedness is the exact opposite of what Ham did, isn't it? Look at the, the details. Then Shem and Ham, or then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, walked backwards, covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward. Do you see the great lengths that Moses is going to show us? They did not look. They didn't see it. Their intent was covering, not exposing. Now just think about the way that this is worded here and what they've done. Is this, if you just put yourself in this situation, is it absolutely necessary to do it this way? I mean, Noah's in his tent. They could just as well throw the garment in the tent and then keep guard outside the tent and wait until Noah sobers up. And he can get himself dressed. All right, but that, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is just as much about the loving kindness of the brothers as it is about the foolishness of Ham. Shem and Japheth bring resolution. They bring restoration to the crisis that Ham has created. While Ham acted like the serpent in exposing the shame of his father, Shem and Japheth... Who were they imitating? Remember back in Genesis 3. They're imitating God in covering up the shame. Think back again to the garden. Adam and Eve discover that they're naked, and they attempt to cover up their own nakedness with the fig leaves. But because their own attempts were inadequate, God stepped in. He made clothing from animal skins, and he clothed Adam and Eve. He covered their shame. Shem and Japheth are imitating the Lord here. They honor their father by covering his nakedness, covering his shame, covering his sin. I want you to notice how this this same word, to cover, is used elsewhere in the Scriptures. Psalm 32, 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Same word. Psalm 85, 2. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. And then look at Proverbs 17. This one's particularly relevant. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. See what's happening? Ham is the proverbial fool. Ham repeated the matter, didn't he? He didn't just see the offense, he announced it. But Shem and Japheth are like the Lord in that they are acting in faithfulness. They are acting in wisdom. They cover their father's sin. The godly way that we deal with one another's sin as Christians is to pursue restoration. The Lord pursues restoration in the garden. He covers the sin of Adam and Eve. Shem and Japheth pursue the restoration of the father by first covering his shame. This is, this is not the same as a cover-up, right? So don't think cover-up here. Don't, don't think throw it under the rug. It's more like Galatians 6. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, Noah was caught in his transgression, wasn't he? If, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, that is, you who are born again into Christ, should restore him. How? In a spirit of gentleness. And Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's what Shem and Japheth were doing, isn't it? Shim and Japheth are the spiritual ones here. They're fulfilling the law of Christ. They are restoring their father in a spirit of gentleness. They're taking pains. They're taking pains to keep their own eyes averted so as not to dishonor their father. And they're bearing their father's burden with him. This is the model for us as Christians. It's our model. If there is a Christian brother or sister who is caught in sin, our temptation is Ham's temptation. Our temptation is to think we're better than them. That would never happen to me. I would never do that. I'm a better Christian than they are. I love Jesus more than they do. And then what do we do? To kind of drive that nail in, gossip about it. Or we take on this this attitude of self righteousness towards them and look down on them. But the model of true righteousness that is given for us is to be willing to crawl through the mud with them and help them out of the mess that they're in. Again, this does not mean we cover up sin. We don't ignore sin, but sin is being addressed. It is being addressed with the goal of restoration. Instead of mocking and instead of humiliation, we're helping to lead them to repentance. Remember this, church. You may be the means, you will be, not may, you will be the means at some point. You will be the means that the Spirit uses to bring another Christian to repentance. So do so in the spirit of Christ with gentleness rather than ham-fistedness. So, well, somehow or another, Noah wakes up from his wine coma and he finds out what ham has done. I don't know how he found out what ham has done. Maybe he knows, I went to sleep uncovered and now I'm covered. How did that happen? The text does not say, and this, again, leads to all sorts of speculation. But somehow Noah knows. And for the first time, I don't know if you knew this, this is the first time in all of Noah's story where he's going to speak. The first thing that we ever see from Noah is a curse word. the curse is against the offspring of the one who has shown himself to be of the serpent in his actions. In fact... As we're following Genesis 3 and Genesis 9 alongside one another, Noah's curse of Ham and Canaan draws a very close parallel to God's curse of the serpent. Let me show you. Look at Genesis 3:14 and 15 again. Genesis 3:14, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, on your dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. What's Noah doing here? Noah is he's delineating between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. His, his oracle, his curse, it is a, it's a pronouncement. It's a declaration. He's saying to everyone in all the world, Ham is not the spiritual offspring of the woman. Ham is, Ham's line is not the Genesis 3.15 line. He's not a part of the blessing. He is the spiritual offspring of the serpent. He's like Cain. So we can know that his offspring will be at enmity with the promised offspring of the woman. Right. So Ham's descendants will be enemies with... Whoever the offspring of the woman turns out to be, that's the next mystery for us to follow. And that raises an interesting question for us. Maybe we can see why God curses the offspring of Ham in this way. Because the offspring of the serpent is also included in God's curse of the serpent. Genesis 3.14. But why does Canaan get the brunt of the curse? Maybe you don't have that question, but... For your information, Ham has four sons. We're going to find this out next week. Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. And really all of them at some point will be enemies of Israel, the offspring of the promise. All of them will prove themselves to have serpent-like characteristics. So why is only Canaan mentioned here? Well, this is a question that has baffled Christians like forever, right? Thousands of years. And there have been numerous attempts at explaining it. Let's read the curse again once more and try to understand this issue. But cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Noah also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. So sometimes prophecies or Oracles like this aren't always super clear when they're first pronounced, right? We just need to recognize that about Old Testament prophecies. They're not always super clear when they first come out. Probably the best comparison, the best parallel for this later on is when Jacob blesses his sons at the end of Genesis, all right? So like Noah's curse, Jacob's blessing has these elements in it that don't make a lot of sense at the time that they're given. All right, so we don't know exactly why God is cur- or why Noah is cursing Canaan here. We find out later on Canaan's got issues. Uh, in, in Jacob's blessing, we don't know exactly why Jacob gives a the bad blessing to his youngest son, his favorite boy, Benjamin. So, so, like when you're reading Genesis and you read about Benjamin, he's always he's always spoken of very very highly. He's he's the the, the youngest one, uh, Jacob cherishes Benjamin There's no reason why Jacob when he finally gives all these blessings at the end of Genesis why he would say Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at the evening dividing the spoil I mean you read it and go what did Benjamin do to deserve that? likewise here what did Canaan do to deserve this? But by the time you get to judges you realize that this this prophecy that Jacob has made at the end of Genesis, fits the Benjaminites to a T. Now, did they become that way because of this prophecy, or was it more of a foretelling? I don't know. Regardless, though, the prophecy is important, that prophecy at the end of Genesis is important to the future of Israel. That's what's happening here. With Noah's curse, it functions as a a foretelling in many ways. As we've seen a number of times in Genesis, there's also some wordplay happening here. We need to be aware of. We've seen it all over. Let's just get used to it. Moses likes puns. So the word Canaan is derived from the word Cana, and Cana means to subdue. So remember, Israel is going into the promised land, is about to subdue that place, and the people whose name means subdue. And the reason why the Canaanites will be subdued, or Cana, by the Israelites is because of their wickedness. The Canaanites, as we find out later on, and read Leviticus 18, uh, not right before bed, but sometime, read Leviticus 18, you'll see the Canaanites are an idolatrous, wretched people whose sins have piled up for generations and generations and generations, and the Lord, through the Israelites, is going to judge them. He's going to cleanse the land of these people. So Noah's oracle is a prophecy of that eventuality, more it is more than it is a, a judgment against Canaan, the son. I know does, doesn't it doesn't exactly explain why Ham's other sons are, are left out here. Obviously, Egypt could have been included in, in Noah's curse. But just as, as an aside, it is God who defeats Egypt without the Israelites going to battle. But the the Israelites are going to have to battle the Canaanites. Maybe maybe if we shift our focus towards the blessing. Let's do that for a moment. Let's shift our focus towards the blessing in the midst of this curse. and, And maybe we can better understand what's happening here. This is where we kind of really get some momentum. So comparing Noah's curse of Ham to God's curse of the serpent. Back in Genesis 3. We know God's curse of the serpent had an element of blessing. It had an element of promise. In it, Genesis 3.15. The offspring of the woman would have his heel bruised by the offspring of the serpent, but the offspring of the woman would prevail and bruise the head of the serpent. And so the running question for us as we've been making our way through Genesis is, well, who is that offspring of the woman? That's the question we're supposed to be asking. And we've been following these genealogies trying to discern who that might be. We know that the promise has come down from Eve through Seth, and then out of all of Seth's sons and daughters to Enosh, and then from all of Enosh's kids to Kenan, then Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and then Noah. And then with Noah, we get a zoomed-in picture. And, and Moses tells us, well, Noah has three sons. And so we're going, okay, well, which of these sons will the promise go through? That's what we're looking for. Ham? Has proven himself to be like Cain, so he's excommunicated. He's of the serpent. Now it's down to Shem and Japheth. Which of these two boys will the promise come down through? Both of them have shown godliness in the covering of Noah's shame. So which one will it be? And, and, and Noah tells us Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. There it is. Let Canaan be his sermon. I want you to just look at this carefully. Look who the blessing is for. It's for the Lord. Noah is blessing the Lord God, Yahweh. He's saying he is the God of Shem. So he's saying Shem belongs to Yahweh. Any blessing that will be passed down will come from God. So Shem's blessing is realized through his belonging to God. And what is this oracle? Well, Shem... Another play on words. Shem means name. All right? So the double meaning here is that God's name, the name of the Lord, Yahweh, will be made known through Shem's line because his name means name. Canaan, whose name means subdue, will be his servant. That means the Canaanites who will be subdued by the Shemites will be subjected to the Shemites or what we call now Semites. Ah. Put it together now, didn't you? Okay. Well, this is fulfilled in Israel's conquest of Canaan. So you read the scriptures, you read uh, Joshua, Israel goes into the land, conquest of Canaan, and this is fulfilled, at least partially. Israel goes into the land, they subdue the Canaanites, it's all, it's all there in Joshua. Well, then, then the next blessing, Noah prays that God would enlarge Japheth. And there's a double meaning here too. Surprise, surprise. Because the name Japheth means enlarge or extend. So the whole curse is filled with these prophetic puns. One, One commentator who I've been helped a lot by in Genesis says that the play on words here is meant to be understood as Noah praying that God would open up that tent to include Japheth. Enlarge the tent. Japheth the tent to include Japheth even though the promise is going through Shem. So so the literal translation would be, may God Japheth for Japheth. Or make the space, enlarge the space for Japheth, the tents of Shem, and cause him to dwell there. You see see what he's saying? We are wondering who gets the blessing. Noah is recognizing it's going through Shem, but I really wish that Japheth could get it too. He really wants Japheth to... Benefit from this. So we're looking for that promised offspring. Noah says it's not Ham. He's of the serpent. It won't be Ham's sons, especially Canaan. Subdued is going to be subdued. Then who is it going to be? Shem or Japheth? Well, it's Shem. But then Noah is asking, that God, God include Japheth in that promise. And does God include Japheth in that promise? Amen, church. He does. Absolutely. The blessing that comes through Shem Goes to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then to Christ and from Christ, it's a massive blessing. It's not just for the Shemites, all the nations. All the nations are included in Christ's blessing. Isaiah 49 6. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So yes, God's going to answer Noah's prayer that Japhethites are going to be included in that. But what's even more amazing is that even the Hamites are going to be included in that blessing. Isaiah elsewhere says that Egypt will be making their way up to God's temple, which is the tent. In fact, even the cursed Canaanites will benefit from the servant of the Lord, the promised one who is coming. Jesus shows us this in dramatic fashion in the Gospels. When he goes and he preaches the Gospel to Canaanite cities, Tyre and Sidon. And then he heals the daughter of a Canaanite woman, showing that the blessing is for all the nations, even the most wretched of them. And how does Jesus accomplish this? This is where it comes full circle. Jesus accomplishes The blessing, he answers the prayer of of Noah by hanging naked on a cross and taking our shame. See, this theme of nakedness and shame being exposed in the garden, being exposed in Noah's tent, that's going to continue all throughout the Scriptures. No matter where you go, no matter what tribe you look to, there is human sin and there is shame But it ends with Jesus. On the cross, Jesus' clothes were stripped from him, and he was fully sober. And his shame was there for all the world to see. Shemites called on him to be crucified, and Japhethites drove the nails. And he hung on the cross, and he endured the suffering, despising the shame, as Hebrews says. That means he was conquering through the shame. And in so doing, Paul says in Colossians, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to shame by triumphing over them. See, in hanging on the cross at the moment when the serpent thought that he had triumphed and he had exposed the nakedness of the promised one, just as he had done to Adam, just as he had done to Noah, Christ took that weapon away from the serpent. He disarmed him. Because Christ, though naked, was not in shame. He was not a sinner. He was the perfect one. The righteous one. The one who took on all of our sin, all of our shame, and he crushed it on the cross. So now listen. The serpent now has nothing he can accuse you of. He has nothing on you. He can't hold you up and say, ha, 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 look at your shame. Because Christ covers you. Sin has no power over you. In Christ, you can freely repent. You can freely trust in Him. You can receive His covering. You can receive His righteousness, His right standing before God. Receive the covering that God gives.